0: This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we begin our trek through the gospel narrative of Matthew and the life and ministry of Jesus, starting with our first look at the story of the birth of Jesus and the visit of the Magi.
1: Yeah. Finally time to get into some verses of text. So you've already done in our Matthew podcast, Brent, you already read through the genealogy. I'm not going to make you read through that again. Thank you. Yeah. That was, was a challenge. So we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to look at today, uh, Matthew 1, what was it, one eighteen, Brent, through 2.12,
0: about that. Yep.
1: So that's the passage we're going to try to get through today. We'll see what kind of time limits we have, but see if we can get through that. So, Brent, I'm just going to have you dive in. Let's just do this thing. I'll probably stop you. This will be like old times, like session one, session two, where you used to read the text, and I would stop you, interrupt, and we'd talk about the Bible.
0: Remember when we used to talk about the Bible? The good old days. Man, too many Christmas. Time to get back to that. Woof. All right. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. What is that translation? Before they came together. What is that? What translation you working with? Oh, that's NIV. It's NIV. Okay. So before they came together, she was, go ahead and say that line again. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All right. So we're familiar with the Christmas story. Um, Oh, man, how much do we want to
1: talk about here and pull apart while we're—obviously, this is uh, is going to be problematic in their world. Um, Not going to be a sin, not according to Torah. Once you're betrothed, you are covenantally, legally according to Torah, you are uh, wed. So, you you, you know, if somebody were to—if you were to engage in—if you were to, as the NIV puts it, come together— it's a very literal rendering. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it, if that were to happen, it wouldn't be. Uh, it would be shameful. It'd be culturally shameful. It would not break Torah. If that makes sense. You have broken no law, but you have shamed your family. You've robbed your family. So we, we all of a she's pregnant and we now have a cultural problem. Because how many people
0: do you suppose are believing the birth story, Brent? Uh, probably not, not too many.
1: Yeah. And there might have been some, I don't know. Everybody debates how fanatical these Galileans were and their belief of prophecy and... I just don't imagine too many people, especially mom and dad. I can't imagine mom and dad are
0: like, "Oh yeah." yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing nobody in the family is believing it. <laughs> yeah, probably, maybe not. A, a few people here and there, but nobody in the family.
1: Yeah. So we we now have a shame. We now uh, no matter what happens, no matter what happens in the story next, like we have a they're betrothed and now she's pregnant. Now now we we have all this backstory. Matthew just says she's become pregnant by
0: the Holy Spirit, um, but we now have a we now have a shame issue. Go ahead and keep reading. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly.
1: Okay, so we, we don't know. And notice he has to divorce her because once you're betrothed in their culture, you're covenantally bound. So it's not going to take a divorce. You, you don't just get a call off the engagement. It's not going to take a divorce to break this off. Um, and, and, I mean, Joseph, we're... we're essentially told here he's a he's a he's a good guy he wants to be compassionate he wants to be gracious he wants to be he wants to do the right thing um i have i have had people read that slightly differently but i I feel like that's what's taking place here He's, he's wanting to take care of her and but obviously something's happened and he doesn't know the backstory doesn't tell us we're not given any extra details as far as what his thoughts are or what his hunches are um uh exactly how much she tells uh Joseph but uh I mean she could have in that day and age uh, very very easily could have gotten uh, abused or raped by a roman soldier uh, taken advantage of in those in those ways in those situations uh in that world dominated by the romans um could have just been an act of infidelity uh Joseph knows it's not his so he he, he the only options on the table there it says he wants to obey the law So he knows that something has to be done, um, but he's not wanting to, he's not going to publicly disgrace her. He's not going to drag her through the mud. He's trying to figure out a way to both do what he feels like the law requires, um, but also try to let Mary maintain whatever dignity she has. So who knows what he knows or what he thinks, but that's what we're told. But all kinds of problems here. Like This story is not, uh, uh, I mean, one of the things that I'll try to point out as we walk through the Christmas story is... We, we rob the Christmas story of, um, of its—help me out here, Brent. You
0: know where I'm headed with this. Messiness?
1: Yeah, we do. We rob it of its messiness. We, we make it about this wonderful Christmas story and golden straw and an angel, and we, we dress it up. And the whole story of Christmas is a story just rife with,
0: ripe with tension. Tension. yeah we try to take the tension out of the story exactly. we
1: want it to be this wonderful and the whole story man, to have people that wrestle. I mean Christmas is a time where people that really wrestle with the messiness and the the yuckiness and family comes into town and or the rejection of family or the loss of family or shame or i mean the Christmas story is just full of all of that people rejecting people left and right um and we just we just miss that this is a this is a mess. What's happened to Mary? This isn't like, oh, yay, virgin birth. This is an absolute disaster for her, culturally.
0: And it's not in the Matthew account, but even like the, the, um, there's no room in the inn. Right. Like, that's how we tell the story. Right. As if it's just like, oh, sorry, we didn't have... And and really, it's more of like the, their family rejected them. Right. But we gloss over that. Right.
1: And, and there's a lot of culture, especially right now, there's a lot of academic and scholastic pushback to that, uh, to some of those ideas. I, we don't really know. The, the, the living situations in Bethlehem would lean one way, lean another way. We don't really know exactly what the setting was. I've often pitched it as being in a shepherd's cave. Um, a stable, we're told. When I take my students over to Israel, uh, I was taught shepherd's cave stuff has kind of changed as of the last decade or two. And so there's a lot of pushback to that. It's very possible that she was given the lower quarters. Um, dwellings in Bethlehem were often multi-storied insulas. Um, uh, and and the bottom story was essentially where they stored the animals. Uh, and so people are like, well, they weren't cast out on their own. and But even still, the pregnant lady... In a, in a culture of hospitality, you are not sticking the pregnant woman down with the cows. Um, there is some level. Uh, we can argue about how close they were to other people or whether or not they were sent out to the edge of town. or. But you're exactly right. This is not an inn. This is not. And and you're quoting the Gospel of Luke. Luke definitely knows how to use his, his language. Uh, he uses the word for inn in the story of um, uh, the Good Samaritan. If you remember, the man is beat up. He takes him to an inn. Uh, pandaxion is the Greek word there. But but Luke also knows how to use the word katuluma. If you remember when Jesus is setting up for the Passover, he says, go find a man carrying a jar and ask for his guest room. Where is the katuluma?" And the word is guest room. The word used in the Christmas story in Luke's gospel is not pandaxion, it is katuluma. So what they're really saying is there's no room in the guest room, which again, in a, in a culture of hospitality... In a world where you sleep multiple families in one dwelling, I, I don't I don't understand how there cannot be room in the Cataluma just scoot over. <laughs> or somebody else go sleep down with the cows, but not the pregnant lady. there is on some level, on some level there is a sense of shame and and a pushing out and a rejection, how deep that runs, we could debate that, but this is a messy, messy story, and that's what Christmas has meant to communicate to us.
0: You're absolutely right. Uh, but go ahead let uh, let's keep reading. Uh, okay, so he had he hadn't mind to divorce her quietly, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, "Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins.
1: Had to have been uh, one heck of an experience and some some move of faith. Uh, and I don't want to keep making this about Joseph because Mary is, is really the, especially in Protestantism, we don't give Mary nearly enough street cred, but uh, she's the one to really be kind of uh, historically honored here in this story. But Joseph is no slouch here either. Uh, the step of faith that I mean, I don't know when the last time was you heard from an angel or had a dream, but I would wake up and really question whether or not I had eaten some bad oatmeal or something before I went to bed or I don't know. I'd have a million different ways to explain that. But for him to get that message and to take that step, because now he's joined her in this shame Uh anyway, enough, enough about that. Let's keep
0: moving. Well, I, I just have to mention it. Since you talked about Mary's street cred, Yes, uh, I'm reminded of the sermon from uh, last year's Advent yeah. series that yeah, you talked yeah, yeah. about, Mary. I got to link that up. Okay, we'll link, yeah, we'll it's link it. It's maybe the best sermon I've ever heard. Wow. It's just... Man, I had a lot of people say that. That was weird. It's so good. All right. It's so good. I've listened to it multiple times. All right. So I'll link that up. All right. If anyone's interested in Mary's street cred... There you go. And I have one other question too. Yes. When he says, Joseph, son of David... He's talking about King David, right? yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely a callback to his uh he just did the genealogy um uh in the chapter before Matthew did, and so now the angel you know he's he's calling out Joseph, this is time for you, and maybe that's why Joseph responds with faith. the angel calls out to him,
0: you, you know uh, this is the line you belong to like this is this is your story like this is when I almost wonder like David's part of the genealogy was one of those messy parts. Sure. That we pointed out. And so is the angel saying like, hey, Joseph, I know this is a little weird, but you're part of a line of weird stories and this is going to be okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've always wondered what
0: Joseph's story was too. I mean, I can't get on this
1: rabbit trail too long, but why is Joseph in Nazareth? Like he has to travel to Bethlehem. That's where his family's from. So why is he not in Bethlehem? Like something happened that made Joseph leave. Was it economic hard times was he ostracized by the family? was he what is his backstory like we We literally have no idea like he's working later in his life. He's working in a stone quarry as a we say carpenter, but it's tecton he's as a as a mason as a builder ninety five percent positive you could say it's it's Herod Herod owns the stone quarry right outside of Nazareth is the only one that would have been hiring and employing the builders Herod and his sons um would have been Herod's sons at that point, Herod uh, Antipas. So, so who is this Joseph character? Like, what is his backstory? Is he Herodian worldview? Is he coming out of a deeply committed Judean um, re- religiosity? Like, like what we, we don't know. But Joseph could very well have his own kind of mumser story. And maybe when he comes home, it's not just his pregnant wife, but his pregnant wife is just compounding an issue that he brought home with him in the first place. I just wish maybe one day, well, whatever heaven looks like, maybe we'll bump into Yosef and we'll be able to be like, hey, what's the backstory? And he'll be tired of telling the story, but he'll tell us.
0: All right, enough. Onward. Uh, This is going to be a short episode. (laughs) Uh, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Okay, that's a
1: good place to to stop for now. And you read a line there about a fulfilled prophecy. Can you go
0: back to that uh, Emmanuel portion? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet: The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Okay, that's a, that is a weird reference. We take that for granted as we read because we want that prophecy to be about Jesus. But we've talked
1: in session two about prophecy and how prophecy worked and what it wasn't doing. And this is a weird prophecy. A, it would seem like Matthew is kind of fighting against what Marty taught us in session two. But I told you that Matthew was what kind of an author speaking to what kind of an audience? A Jew speaking to Jews. Okay, so if a Jewish author goes to the, to the, to the level of pointing out a fulfilled prophecy... The conversation has to be so much deeper and wider for his Jewish audience than just fulfilled prophecy. And we don't have time to dig this and pull us apart right now, but I challenge the readers, go back to Isaiah, find that cross-reference. Do you have the cross-reference cross there, Brent? Uh,
0: Isaiah 7.14. 7.14. Read
1: the, read the context, read the paragraph surrounding verse 7. You're going to realize that passage has nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, nothing at all. Um, In fact, it's talking about uh, the prophet and the prophetess and possibly even uh, talking about Hezekiah, the current king, uh, at the time of Isaiah and this prophecy. So what in the world is Matthew saying this this happens to fulfill the prophecy? See, all of a sudden this becomes a lot deeper and a lot more complicated than uh, that wasn't a prophecy to be fulfilled Like nobody was sitting around going, oh, where's the child? It's going to be called Emmanuel. Isaiah was already talking about the child called Emmanuel and it wasn't Jesus. So why is Matthew calling this to mind? I think Matthew is calling that to mind to say those days that Isaiah was talking about are already upon us. Here we are oppressed by our captors, oppressed by the Romans, crying out for help. And those same days that we dealt with before are upon us now and here is God with us. And he calls back to this ancient prophecy to say those same things that happened then are happening today, only now they're taking shape in a new situation, a new king, a new kingdom, and we're seeing it in Jesus. Now, probably a good place to, to kind of stop here, because before we finish the rest of our passage today, I, I need to give us some backstory. So I'm going to hit pause on the text, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump over here to what seems like a totally irrelevant conversation, and then we'll We'll come back to that. I have not been able to take my students to this location. But in Turkey, there's a spot that I got to go back to in 2010. And then recently when I was scouting, um, just uh, last year, I got a chance to run into it. I've I've been looking for it for ever since I I got to go to it in 2010. I've been looking for this place. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. finally found it last year on my scouting trip. Um, And up on top of a hillside in the region of Galatia, modern day turkey there is the ruins of an ancient ancient temple it's a temple to men or um not men as in men and women but men as in meneskenu meneskenu if you want to look that up or google it it's m e n e s k e n u meneskenu men is the ancient phrygian god of that region it somewhere dates Somewhere around uh, four thousand to three thousand BC. So we're talking good millennia before Abraham to give us a reference point. the The worship of Meneskenu is uh, connected uh, to the zodiac, ancient ancient forms of the zodiac. We have been studying the zodiac and worshiping the zodiac as humankind for a long, long time, for thousands and thousands of thousands of years. Pretty much as 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 old as humanity. Uh, What is it I'm trying to say? As long as we have been looking at the stars, um, we have been coming up with all kinds of theories and ideologies. We've been coming up with religions. We have been worshiping the stars in a lot of ways for thousands and thousands of years, especially in the pagan world, um, as people have looked at the stars, they've made very similar observations over the course of human history. One of those is that obviously the stars move. And so one of the biggest theories as they looked up at the night sky that seemed to move and flow, uh, what was one of their main theories? When we look up at the sky, we must be looking at what, Brent? In fact, we even talked about this with Egypt and the cartouche and the vault. Uh, we must be looking at where the gods live. Gods live in what, what kind of world is it? Like what if it's kind of... It's like the sea. It's a sea. It's a gigantic cosmic watery ocean. And the stars are floating in this ocean. That's why it moves as the year goes. They don't have any concept of how orbits work and all those kind of things. And so they just look up there. They realize that the skies, it has to be water the way that it moves around us. So there must be a C up there. But they also noticed that everything moved in unison, in rhythm, except for what they could see was seven stars. Um, They noticed that, uh, let's see here, I've got them listed in my notes, Uh, the sun, the moon, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and I've even been told somehow uh, they had some awareness of Uranus at different points in history all of these stars and parts of the sea where they looked at it and they said, those stars don't move in the sea the same way as all the other stars. They don't move with the constellations. They're like on their own, they're doing their own thing. And so throughout the ancient world, they always connected those those stars, especially the Roman world. You know, Rome now, they worship Jupiter and Mars and Saturn and Venus. These were These were gods that they worshiped. They would connect these stars to... To God worship well this temple in um, uh, in, in Galatia it wouldn't be Galatia at that point this temple in ancient Phrygia uh, worships Meneskenu. and the story that lies behind Meneskenu is Meneskenu is connected to the constellation of Taurus and the reason that Taurus is worshipped in fact when you when you hike up to this temple you're going up this mountain as you get closer to the temple you start finding all of these stones. Uh, almost signposts, indicators. When you get close to the temple, you'll find ruins of the temple lying all over. And all over these stones are pictures of the bull in the temple or in the house, you might say, especially in the Greek, you'd say oikos. The bull is in the house. That's what those... And I think, Brent, you might even have some pictures that you can connect to our, our, our show notes here. But you'll have a bull... In a house, here's the bull, and it looks like a moon, but it's really the horns of Taurus is what it is. Uh, and Taurus is in the house, connected to the worship of Menaschino. What it's referring to is the spring solstice on March, what we would call March 21st. On the spring solstice, solstice the beginning of spring solstice, um, uh, the sun, the chief, like if you think of all the sun, moon, Jupiter, Venus, like what's the brightest, biggest, best star on that list, Brent? Uh, probably Mars most of the time. Well, I mean like the brightest and biggest of the sun, the moon. Oh, 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 the sun. The sun, right? So the sun gets connected to this chief God worship and the sun on spring solstice was rising into the house of Taurus. And so they said, well, Taurus is the owner of the Zodiac and that got connected to the worship of Menescanum. That's all fine. It's all well and good. Ancient stories of the astro- of ancient astrology and worship of ancient gods. Something happened about 2,000, 3,000 years later, about 146 BC. Do I have that date right? Let me check. One, no, I don't. Glad I checked. How about 167 BC? 167 BC. There was a Greek philosopher and astrologer uh, that was studying uh, his ancient Babylonian, actually, I think at first it was Egyptian. He was in Egypt. I believe he was in Alexandria. He was studying his ancient records, and he noticed this reference to the bull in the house. And it surprised him because, in fact, the bull isn't in the house in 167 BC. The sun does not rise into the constellation of Taurus. In 167 BC, the sun rises into the constellation of Aries, And so he was confused. He said, no, no, it doesn't rise in the house of Taurus. And so he went over to Babylon. He made a trek all the way to Babylon to check Babylonians. They're, they're, they're the other leading astrologers, Alexandria and Babylon, Egypt and Babylon. So he went over to check their records. Sure enough, in the ancient, ancient world of 3000 BC and beyond, the records show that the bull, the, the sun was rising to the house of Taurus. But it doesn't anymore in 167 BC. What they didn't know is what we know now. And that is that the earth, the tilt, the axis of the earth is on the slightest ever wobble. The wobble of the Earth a- Earth's axis. And because of this wobble, the zodiac slowly, slowly, slowly shifts year by year by year. And about every 2160 years, about every 2160 years, 2160 years, it wobbles enough that the sun rises into a new house. And by house, what do we mean by house? If you look at the zodiac, what does it look like, Brent? Yeah, or There's probably different representations of the Zodiac, but the common representation, how do we represent
0: it? It's like a circle broken into like pie pieces.
1: Yeah, it looks like a big pizza, right? And every slice of the pizza is what we would call a house, a house of the Zodiac, right? And all your Zodiac signs correspond, and the Zodiac changes over the course of that. That's very, very, very complicated. By the way, if you want a good book to try to get your head around this... Uh, There's a book by James Kennedy, Dr. James Kennedy. I will not recommend his resources very often. Uh, We actually have in our show notes linked the TBN special for his book. (laughs) We won't be recommending too many TBN uh, things, but uh, I actually got a copy of the same TBN special book. Um, uh, James Kennedy is often on TBN. If you're not familiar with TBN, if you didn't grow up with Christian fundamentalism, it was the cable uh, the cable Christian evangel the televangelist channel, so that's always fun. So you won't see me recommending too many of those books. But this actually is known today as he did a, He did a, a major thesis on on the real on the meaning of the zodiac. It has a lot of good history. I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of his application or his nuances at all. But if you want to try to get a handle on the ancient zodiac, it's a short, little, easy uh, paperback read, uh, and we'll we'll link that there too. It gives you an idea of how the zodiac has worked throughout
0: history. Don't buy it new. It's like $50, but you can get a used copy for about 10 bucks. There you go. Definitely do that. Those Christians on TV, got to watch out for them
1: and get you, get you with that money. Oh man. Anyway, so, so that was the worship of, of the Zodiac. And what they didn't know was, was that that wobble was making it rise into a new house. And so out of this realization sprung a whole brand new religion. This Greek philosopher, uh, in one sixty-seven BC, made this discovery, and I don't know if he would get the credit for this new worldview. This new worldview arose that said, "Well, if, listen, if something, if the if the sun used to rise in Taurus and now it's rising in Pice in Aries, well, something must have something big, something powerful, must have come in and altered something even bigger than the sun, because the sun is a part of this cosmic astrology." Like, I know where the sun goes every single day, does the same thing every single day. I know how Venus and Jupiter and all that, I know how they work, but something must be bigger than all of that. And something or somebody came into this cosmic universe, altered the course of the universe in their world, in their, in their words, killed the bull, slaughtered Taurus, and altered the zodiac. I mean, think of how powerful that God must be. That was the narrative that ran behind this. And they combined it with the myth of Zoroastrianism, which was coming out of Persia. Ancient, ancient, probably starts somewhere around 700 BC or possibly even earlier and different roots. But they take this idea, they combine it with some of these uh, very astrologically minded Zoroastrianism. That's the popular term. And in Rome, in the Greco-Roman world of the Bible, it became known as Mithra. Mithra was the Greco-Roman version of Zoroastrianism in the world of Greece and Rome. Now, you're sitting there going, "Marty, why are you wasting all kinds of time going through this?" Here's a the reason. There were two fastest-growing religions in the 1st century when the Bible is being written. Number 2 is Christianity. Number 1 is by far in the first century, in the beginning of the first century, it's not even—I mean, obviously, Christianity is just getting started. Towards the beginning of the first century, it's not even—it's not even close. Mithra is the fastest-growing religion in the Roman Empire in the first century. It, the, the growth rate is astronomical. It's a—it's a man's religion. Literally, it was—I'm not trying to make a joke. It was beer and brats. They would actually—I um, was actually there. Uh, form of worship was beer, ancient beer and brats it's just amazing the common parallels to today's culture uh, It was a man's religion uh, driven by the 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 male psyche it actually had a ton of parallels. this predates the gospels by a long long way one sixty seven BC I'm telling you is when the worldview started to take off in form it uh it had it had a priesthood with seven sacraments the the story of the birth of Mithra was that Mithra was born in a cave. He was attended by shepherds. Uh, the sign of Mithra was the cross, not the crucifixion cross of Jesus, but the, the zodiac sign of the cross, which represented the tear. When I said somebody came into the zodiac, if you look at the ancient forms of the zodiac, uh, Kennedy will point this out in his book, there is they wanted to represent a tear where Mithra came into, he tore into the, he tore into the cosmic sea altered the universe, and then left. And the tear is represented by a cross. It represents the tear of Mithra coming into the Zodiac. All of this stuff to set the stage for what we're about ready to read next in our passage. So go ahead, Brent, and keep reading where you left off.
0: After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him.
1: Okay, stop. Now, Magi from the where? From the east. Where is east, Brent? What kind of kingdoms? What is the east kingdom? Persia, perhaps? Persia, absolutely. Persia will be more like north and northeast, but what else is lies over there? Persia and? Babylonia. Babylon. Okay, okay. That's where the ancient astrologers... That's where you'd expect Magi to come from. Magi would come from the East. Magi would come from Babylon. But why are they coming? And they say something very interesting. They don't just talk about how they saw a star, but they say that they saw a star what? When it rose. When it rose. If you talk to astronomers today, um, there's all kinds of different theories that that, that reign about this. Some people say that the... Uh, The age of Aries went all the way to 600 A.D., but no ancient school of astrology thought that. No ancient school of astronomy thought that in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, as they were keeping track of the calendar and the records, and as they were keeping track of astrology from places like Babylon or Egypt, according to their records, the age of Aries ended about 5 B.C., Some will even put it in 3 BC or 2 BC, but somewhere in that neighborhood, we left the age of Aries and we entered the age of Pisces. Wouldn't it make sense that astrologers who are already aware of this um, changing astrology, where on the spring solstice, the sun rises into a new house would be aware of a brand new age coming. But how would they know when to come? And why do they say what they say? You have a
0: passage out of Numbers, Brent. Don't worry, everybody. I'm pulling this together. Then he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, The prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God. Who has knowledge from the Most High. Who sees a vision from the Almighty. Who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. Okay, now who is talking here? You just said it? Balaam. Balaam, son of... Beor.
1: Beor. He's working for who, by the way? Context, back in the book of Numbers. Somebody had asked Balaam to come in and curse Israel. I believe this is his fourth oracle. He's already given three. I think this is his fourth oracle. And Balak is the king of Moab, and he has asked Balaam to come in. But Balaam's not from Moab. He's asked Balaam to come from where, Brent? Hmm... Babylon. 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 (laughs) He's asked a Babylonian astrologer, seer, prophet to come in and curse the Israelites. And Balaam comes in and he utters these oracles. And if you know your backstory, you know Balaam can't curse the Israelites. God won't let him. He can
0: only bless the Israelites. And so you're halfway through his oracle. Go ahead and give us the second half and see what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. A dome will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city.
1: All right. So he said a what would rise out of Jacob? A star. A star would rise. What was it that the Magi said? Go ahead and jump back to your other passage, Brent. Tell me
0: what the Magi said. When they, when they talk to Herod. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Wouldn't it be interesting if magi from Babylon were aware
1: of their, now we would say the text. Now they wouldn't, they wouldn't have the Bible in the same way that we have the Bible or even the Jews would have the Bible. But wouldn't it make sense that magi from Babylon would know the words of one of their ancient prophets who prophesied about the king of Israel? You see, these these total pagans from the East, these magi from the East, know their text. And I would even push this even further to say, how do they know how to show up now? And there's been a lot of theories, a lot of uh, uh, astronomical theories about what happened around 2 BC, 2 to 4 BC when Jesus could have been born. Um, there's definitely a convergence of uh, Jupiter and Venus. Now, can you remember, Brent, who does Jupiter represent in mythology? mm some god. The king. like <laughs> Jupiter is the the biggest king. So okay. Jupiter is uh, so, Zeus. Is Jupiter is a Roman god? Jupiter is a Roman god. Zeus would be the Greek equivalent. Okay. Okay. Venus. Well, Venus is the mother goddess. So when you put the, uh, the father goddess and the mother goddess together, wouldn't it make sense that you would have a baby? In fact, some have said at different points of the year this collision would have possibly even happened at the foot of... Uh, uh, even constellations one one theory says Leo one, one, one uh, theory says Virgo. Virgo would be the what is what is what would we say in the English? Virgo is the the virgin. okay. See I wonder if they even know their text to the point where they're even they're putting all the astrological signs together and they're going, this is the moment. I wonder if their pagan belief in astrology combined with a little bit of faith in the text, has led them to the right moment at the right time to come seeking the birth. Now, that, that's not even what astounds me. Like this is all, I mean, so much of this is speculation. What astounds me about this is the way that God is able to work within the, the context of history to bring about his story. Wouldn't it make sense that God sends Jesus at the same time when the whole world is going, we're entering a new age When when the world is surging towards this brand new religion about Mithra, the story of a king born in a cave attended by shepherds who will have priests that will have seven sacraments whose sign would be, doesn't it make sense that God would use that exact point in human history to say, I've got a story. It's the same thing that you're looking for, only it's the real deal. That's what blows my mind about all of this. So let's go ahead and uh, finish out the passage, and I might add some commentary
0: as we get there, but let's read the rest of this out. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Okay, stop. Read those last two
1: verses again, because the wording is tricky when we translate it into the English, and some people have pointed this out. And again, I propose to you that Matthew may have not even been written in Greek to begin with, might have been written in Hebrew. That would have impacted this translation a ton, but that's that's an argument from silence, and I'm speculating, so I can't make that case
0: ironclad. But read those two verses again. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Okay. So they see the star, stopped over the
1: place. They saw the star and were overjoyed. What's the next line? On coming to the house. On coming to the house. House. Now, some have pointed out. Like, we just read that and we're like, well, see, the Magi arrived two years later, which is a, that's a, you can read it in such a way that the Magi show up two years after and Jesus is living in a house. That's not how you talk about this. You, you don't talk about they come to the house. That's not the way you would talk about it. This isn't just saying Jesus was no longer in the stable. It's two years later and he's in a house. There's also a way to read the Christmas story that has the Magi in the birth narrative, like in the birth narrative picture. They could be there. Um, It's not a popular reading, but there are ways to put the details together to where that works. But another way you can read this is they saw the star over the house. They saw it in the zodiac right as they had come looking for it. Anyway, somewhat
0: speculative, but love to point that out. Go ahead and uh, keep reading. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Which I just love that because God is at work with a bunch of pagan, <laughs> a bunch of pagan
1: seers, a bunch of pagan astrologers. And God's seeing them dreams and working through them. What did they do? Did they go back home and all of a sudden start a church and be believers? I just love that story. It shows that God is at work outside the bounds of what we would say God works in this box. Apparently God is at work in at work in all kinds of boxes outside of the box that we feel comfortable with. Uh, and again, that's the agenda of Matthew, the agenda of Mumser. So by the way, great movie. If you want to, it's one of my favorites. I've had people tell me this is academic nonsense that I like this movie, but I think it's horribly accurate. Um, I think it's very, very accurate to the cultural setting the context. I think they've done an excellent job. It's uh, the Nativity Story is a movie. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. My family watches the Nativity Story uh, every uh, every year on Christmas. It's one of the things that we do on Christmas Day uh, to remember the Christmas narrative. It uh, stars Poe Dameron as Joseph. Before he was Poe Dameron, <laughs> I like this guy as an actor before everybody else did. Let the records show. Anyway, yeah, it's a good, good movie. I, I just love the way it talks about cultural context and, and, um, or the way it portrays the cultural context of their day. I think, it,
0: I think it nails it. I have seen the movie, but that was before my uh, time going through Bema, so I should probably revisit it. I might appreciate it a little more than I yeah. did back then. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: by the way, one passing note as we go to close this podcast. Uh, we, we don't spend our time walking through the Gospel of Mark, but this whole idea of Mithra, I told you it was a fastest growing religion in what world? In the Roman world? Roman world. Who does Mark write his gospel to? To the Romans. To the Romans. What's interesting, if you read Mark's gospel of like, say, uh, well, Brent, let's think about the baptism of Jesus. Let's think, don't worry about Mark's gospel. Just think about the story of the baptism. Jesus is baptized. And what happens when he's baptized? Uh,
0: The dove comes down, or the the spirit of God comes down like a dove and and says, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Yep. Okay. Now, where does the dove come out of? What happens to the...
1: It comes down, we're told that Jesus comes out of the water. Okay, yeah. The heavens are opened up. Okay. And the dove comes down. Sure. Okay. What's interesting is the word that Mark chooses to use. He doesn't use just the heavens were opened. Mark says the heavens were torn. Mm -hmm. The heavens were torn open, which A, that's in your text, prophet Isaiah what anybody, you remember, Brent? What the prophet Isaiah said? No, <laughs> Lord, Lord, rend the heavens! Oh yes, tear open the heavens! Rend the heavens and come down! And Mark says, "I got a I got a way to tell you the gospel." How about the heavens were torn open, just like your Mithra narrative? And in comes Jesus, and he messes with the cosmos. And then at the end of gospel of the of Mark's gospel. Or the end of all the Gospels, we're told that something is torn. Brent, what is torn at the end of the Gospel?
0: The veil of the Temple.
1: The veil of the Temple. Now, in most Gospels, we assume that the veil of the Temple is which which veil? Which veil do we picture? Uh, like the, the curtain around the Holy of Holies? Yeah, there's a curtain going into the Holy of Holies. That must be the one that got torn because God's coming out of the Holy of Holies, all kinds of theology around that. The interesting thing is how many Romans have ever been in the temple?
0: Um, probably about zero. Yeah,
1: zero. One, I mean, guy, one guy in the story of Hanukkah, he, he got in there, probably yeah. a few others, but you, you get my point. Romans don't know anything about the veil inside the temple. The only veil that the um, Romans have ever seen is the veil that sits on the front door of the temple. And Josephus tells us what sits on the veil of the front door of the temple. What... What do you suppose, or if you can remember me teaching on this, Brent, is on the front veil of the temple? Not the Holy of Holies. That would have been cherubim, according to the book of Leviticus, or Exodus, excuse me. What was on the front veil? Mm, A bull? No. The Zodiac. Oh, the whole Zodiac. The whole Zodiac, according to Josephus, was portrayed on the front veil of the temple of Herod. So what does a Roman see... If that the beginning of the gospel, the heavens are torn open and Jesus arrives. And at the end of the gospel, the curtain and the only one they know of is the Zodiac curtain is torn and Jesus leaves. They see the Mithra narrative or not the Mithra narrative itself, but they see a total play on the Mithra narrative. Now, again, the Western apologetic response is to go, well, which temple curtain was torn then? And I am supposed that maybe in some of my apologetics classes, we would have said both of them. And we might just miss the whole point, which is Mark saying, Jesus is this character that you're looking for, not Mithra. Jesus is the one that's come in and changed the entire cosmos. G- and see, I, I, we just never talk about Mithra. It's such a gigantic part of the context of your gospels, because it's the fastest growing religion of the world of the gospels. Everybody would have been converting to Mithra. Everybody would have been joining the Mithra cult. And here comes Mark saying, I've got a better option. And you can understand why the largest growing population in the early Christian movement was women and children. Because the men are flocking which direction, Brent? To Mithra. To Mithra. How do you suppose their wives and children felt about that? Probably not uh, very welcome. Probably not as enthusiastic as their dads did. And so where do they go? They go to the second fastest growing religion. And you understand this cultural context to this. Anyway, we'll get more into, we're not going to be talking about Zodiac for the next 30 podcasts or anything like that. But an interesting place to start as we wrestle with the Magi. And I want to keep showing us that as we wrestle with the Gospels, I, I think the answer is in the text. Even in the midst of all of this cultural context, I think we have pagan priests, uh, pagan, pagan astrologers wrestling with their Bible. Like when you wrestle with the Bible, God shows up. I think we've said that with the Essenes. We're going to see it all throughout Matthew's
0: gospel, all throughout the ministry of Jesus. It's in the text. And as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I think this idea of text context is... Uh, going to show up more and more and more as we get through the New Testament oh, I sure hope so All right, so that's it for this um, short and sweet little episode <laughs> <laughs> uh, we hope you guys uh, check out the website find a discussion group to get into start a discussion group if there's not one in your area uh, we have more and more people contacting us and more and more groups starting up all the time uh, so, so please um, check that out uh, we'd love to help you facilitate that as well If you have any questions, you can contact us through the website. Uh, We've got a Facebook page. We've got Twitter. We've got all this stuff. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.